Welcome to another episode of the Twice Told Tales podcast. Uh, today we have uh, Ken. He's joining us from Kuala Lumpur. Uh, how are you doing, Ken? Good, good. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Hi, Satare. Good to see everyone. Thank you. Hi. Good to see you after a long time. Mm-hmm. So, Satare, do you have some questions for Ken? Well, I would like to ask him to start by introducing himself. <laughs> uh, okay, where do I start? Just a short one, Satari. Not a, not too long. I don't need okay. to tell a thousand and one nights. Uh, till, <laughs> yes. Um, I'm okay. Maybe I I'm a a researcher, uh, a research um, a lecturer before. Um, based in uh, Kuala Lumpur, uh, working with one of the uh, MPs in Malaysia right now. Um, but also I um, help out um, with um, teaching and workshop with NGOs and also uh, community groups. Um, previously, I was in Iran uh, from 2018 to 2020 before COVID. Then I came back to Kuala Lumpur and I've been based here uh, ever since to now. Yeah. I'm from Penang, so I'm based in Kuala Lumpur right now, but I'm Penang. So um, maybe um, besides Kuala Lumpur, Chris, maybe you come to Penang also. Penang's an island up north. It's a nice place. I know it's, it's been there, Setare. So that's where, uh, my, my, uh, that's where my hometown and state is. And... Um, I've been in Kuala Lumpur, I think, for about close to 15, 15 to 20 years now, I think, since university. Great. Is that enough, Setari? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's perfect. Right. Thank yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we can ask, start asking more detailed questions. So what is your work mainly about? I've, I, as far as I remember, you studied history, right? I was of- in the Malay Studies department in the National University mm-hmm. of Singapore, but I, my, my thesis was on Malaysian political history, so I wrote among oh, Malaysian okay. political history, yeah, but I um, also have interests in um, more broadly general uh, Asian history, uh, political history, and also, of course, uh, Iranian, Iranian uh, cultural and political history. Yeah, right now, right right now, yeah. So since coming back from Iran, right now I'm more involved in um, policy research, and also writing, Mm -hmm. yeah, for some of for for again uh, an MP in Parliament. So yeah, but I'm hoping to then move back into teaching and research, uh, academic teaching and research. So great. So are you? Uh, how, like working with the MP in your uh, field of study, uh, what you studied in for your PhD, or is it something like different? It's uh, different and also the same in the sense that um, mm-hmm. the parliament debates that uh, take place cover a broad range of different issues and fields. So mm-hmm. we discuss and we do research. So me and the, and the team, which helps him out. Uh, who help? We do research on 
areas, including um, government and institutional reform, to the economy, to society and uh, social um, inclusion, and then to environment. So it covers a broad range of uh, fields. So the ones that I'm more familiar, familiar with, of course, are the ones like in uh, politics, law, and government, but also we have people who come in and help out, and, and also we do a lot of readings on other fields also, especially on climate. I think climate has been something that everyone is talking about mm. at the moment, right, everywhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Chris probably has some questions about that, right? Yeah, what, what do you find is the issue on climate? Are people um, like sort of myopically focused on carbon dioxide or are they talking about a, a broad range of things like uh, deforestation and pollution, non-carbon non pollution and that sort of thing? Or is it mostly about climate change? I, I think there are various... Yeah, the government does talk about... Uh, CO2, carbon emissions, the carbon cap, IPCC, and, and, and things like that, achieving the, the goals and the milestones. Uh, but it, I would think that it covers larger issues also, like Chris mentioned, deforestation, uh, which is a huge issue in Malaysia. Um, mm. We have many NGOs, which, which is something that is good over the last, um, despite COVID, we have many young groups, young people, uh, NGOs who talk about um, reclamation, uh, deforestation, um, um, uncontrolled uh, development, property and housing development. So, um, net, net, uh, habitat conservation. So, yeah, it covers a broad That's range. Good. Yeah. That's good. I find, I mean, my personal observation is that a lot of, a lot of times it's, heavily focused on the carbon dioxide issue, and that's probably the least of our concerns in reality. Can, I mean, forests and, and uh, nature and, you know, destroying all of that through all the other ways that humans pollute and, and consume things seems to be not as politically or profitable politically viable or profitable. So when you can sell people new products like electric cars and that kind of thing, the corporations are really, really want to do that much more than they want to do anything else. And then let alone the actual uh, implications of what carbon dioxide means, the planet, uh, people don't look very closely at that. But anyway, that's, uh, that's great to hear that they're doing a lot of deforestation mitigation or at least talking about it that's good yeah the the conversations and 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 debates are there only i would i i suppose the um the extent of it i suppose is is still very much um concentrated and limited yeah so we have many groups but also um the larger public i think um, many or just about starting to get more familiar and it's also very capital centric I would believe mainly based in Kuala Lumpur and the big cities but um, so yeah so at the same time it's 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 happening it's moving but the reach of it is also uh, slightly um, limited but you can see more and more are trying and and I think 
uh, many government uh, officials uh, and also especially parliaments on both sides of the 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 block. I think I think it helps to to create awareness and spread more uh, to to bring out the message to people around the country. Yeah, well, a lot of the environmental topics are both capital and capital <laughs> centric uh, in the in the environmental issue because a lot of the like government bureaucrats who discuss environmental issues are are detached completely from the environment. They live in a completely artificial existence, and and so much of what they they discuss is the has to be taken with a grain of salt because they don't actually understand uh, what what it means to be uh, living in or near a forest or any of that kind of stuff. But but that's that's good. I know Malaysia is you know it's in a very tropical area, so you have you have rainforests and all a lot of very rare endemic birds and and other species there. So that's that's a good that's a responsibility of the citizens, I guess, to protect that. I'm also interested in Malaysia as it concerns with being politically uh, in in some in some aspects being very politically um, sort of independent and brave. I, I know it because they they held those tribunals to like to to uh, do like well, how did they term it like basically like have Bush and Cheney as war criminals like for what was that trial that was in Malaysia wasn't it like it was like in the like because of the Iraq war they had these trials in Malaysia that's like one of the political things about Malaysia I was like oh yeah that's that's the place that like uh, that was willing to do you know do you remember that do you know what I'm talking about I, I think it was a few years back, was it? A I long think, time ago. Yeah, it was like uh, probably yeah. 10 years ago or something. And it was yeah. like, but it made mm-hmm. a big impact because there, I think it was the only country in the world that was like, that, that officially or, and I wasn't the whole government. It was a couple of representatives, but they like called out officially like Bush as a war criminal. And uh, yeah, like, I think they even called for his arrest or something but but yeah I, I think, so what do you think about it ken yeah what do, do you, you think about, about that what do you think about it i, I think it was a few yeah so i was I'm, as chris was talking about it i was trying to recall it was it was a few many years back i think yeah I think yeah it, it was yeah it garnered a lot of plus years ago but right right so i think it it, it it didn't get any support, um, official or formal support or participation from anyone, yeah. if I recall correctly. But I think it created a lot of, of news and a lot of um, um, publicity. I think on on the on the issue. I I, I believe, yeah. It was a few. It was many years ago. It was during, and I I'm trying to remember um, who was the prime minister or, or who was the uh, government uh, when that happened it was in the it was a, it was like the last couple of years of obama i think so it was like or right, maybe right. the yeah, middle yeah mm-hmm. it was there was it had been a long time there was a ton of a ton of it was basically a rehashing of all the drama that people remembered from 9-11 and from the uh from the Iraq war and they had already come out with the whole figure of like a million people mm. had died and 
But anyway, what do you think since that what do you think the people's position in generally the population in Malaysia if you were to qualify them as like a in in the scope of non-aligned and aligned countries, do you think they fall more within the non-aligned countries or do you think they're the people themselves are, are more aligned with the imperialists sort of mindset? The- I um I think it's very diverse and it, it depends on on the 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 level um level in the sense of um official government positions I think the government tries to take a more um non-aligned and neutral yeah. I, I would believe yeah although although in the last few years and I I'm not sure maybe Satare uh, and even yourself Chris you might be aware um the, it has gravitated especially during the earlier years before um, the change of government in 2018, I think it has gravitated more towards the Middle East, towards uh, Saudi Arabia, and, and also uh, the few countries, the UAE. Even right now, I think the country is on very good terms uh, with the UAE in the sense that I think the king went to visit uh, UAE a few times, if I remember. Um, but... That that's one aspect of it. I, I think the government um, is also particularly close uh, to China on the other side, so um, to, to the Middle East, uh, to East Asia. Um, it tries to take a more balanced approach. I I would believe uh, to the U.S. and to the EU, um, maintaining a certain uh, relationship, but also um, not as close. Uh, as compared to other countries, I believe um, among the people, um, views are very diverse. Um, if if one would know, like in in Malaysia, because it's very ethnically diverse and and uh, the cultural uh, views and and sentiments are very different. So, in in the case of um, perhaps the Malay uh, Muslim community, for example, they are more uh, inclined or more tied in uh, to, to, to information and, and developments which happen in the Middle East. Um, whereas uh, other ethnic communities, for example, the ethnic Chinese community, are uh, wired in into discourses uh, tied to East Asia, China in, in particularly. So, um, but at a very um, broad level, if, if I can say so, um, we are not a very um, internationally um internationally too sensitive uh we get news now and then but it doesn't actually drive um domestic or national politics i i would believe and and, and I, I, that that would be my view uh people know uh but it doesn't necessarily take up a lot of space on in in national conversations so so if a newspaper ran the headline of like Russia isn't to blame for the Ukraine war. Would that be controversial in Malaysia? No, not like, not actually. I don't <laughs> okay. think so. Yeah, so you're definitely not <laughs> not aligned. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so it um yeah it it's not a very people follow people know I I, I believe but it's not a a, a big thing uh, again I think it doesn't drive um national politics or national conversations as much as other issues, I, w- I would believe. Yeah, okay, that's fascinating. Because that would be extremely controversial to say in America. Your your newspaper would almost certainly uh, 
not survive that. And yet it's <laughs> definitely the truth because America was antagonizing that situation for like eight, eight years prior. And it was never really reported in the U.S. So nobody actually knows the history of 2014 to present Ukraine. They just know the last few months. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a, it's always nice to know that there are countries around the world that aren't completely inundated by the propaganda that we, we are here in America. People don't realize how heavy, heavy it is, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that must be interesting for you. Um, working for a politician there. Do you feel like you can, you understand, like, do you ever listen to Western media? Like, do you understand sort of the, the, the division between the, the lies that the West is Western media is saying? Do you, can you understand that? I mean, is that something? I, I wouldn't say com- completely. Uh, again, I think Malaysians are, and um, Malaysians generally are in some ways um, very focused inwards as well. It would, it would depend on, on particular issues, I think. Again, if it was, um, and it also because of historical links and trade. So if issues are related to more of what, ha- what is happening in the Middle East or in Asia, East Asia, in China, Japan, in Taiwan, um, Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, and Singapore, I think there's much uh, more awareness. So, um, so what about the, Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan? What did people think about that? Yeah, it got uh, it. It went into the headlines for a while um, uh, because the uh, again some politicians and also uh, some of the communities here are more uh, China. China inclined. Um, so, um, I rem- if I remember, one did speak out in saying that uh, it wasn't a, 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 it was a, yeah, it wasn't something that should have been done. Uh, but I also remember, I think the foreign ministry of Malaysia um, uh, articulating a more uh, neutral approach. I think um, being being you know the government, you know, it tries to want to have this. You know, balance between between the, the two. So it took a more uh, neutral and and, and more uh, diplomatic approach in in saying uh, they recognize um, that it's a uh, it's 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 not um, it, it's not um, appropriate, but also that you know ties with the U.S. and the trade are also important uh, in maintaining this this foreign uh, relations and and diplomacy. Um, Debates happen now and then, uh, but the intensity and the division, I would say, in terms of what would I, I, I wouldn't know, but from from what Chris has mentioned, perhaps not as sharp uh, as it is in in other countries. Um, we we see in the news now and then, but it doesn't uh, pick up the as much as other issues. That makes sense because it's not it's not a narrative that's meant to control. Malaysian thought, so it wouldn't be a sharp division. Like, there wouldn't be a, a punishing hand to come down and <laughs> slap you back into line, where there definitely is here. Uh, so, uh, what about the uh, Saudi influence? Are they are they opening lots of like uh, Wahhabi Wahhabi madrasas there, or are they do they have uh, 
conservative? Are they pushing their conservative uh, religious views? The at least in academic circles, in 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 certain academic circles, um, writers or some researchers, I think Setarim will have been familiar with all this. Yeah, um, because of the the close links since twenty, I wouldn't. Um, be sure as to where we should position uh, that 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 moment. But over the last decade or so, particularly before twenty eighteen, again, I think relations with um, Saudi Arabia have been very close. Um, particularly um, the prime minister, the previous prime, the then and the, and the Malaysian government. So um, many. Academics have pointed out the cultural uh, and religious influence and narrative, which has also uh, come in into into Malaysia. Uh, a lot of uh, funding goes into also cultural activities, uh, schools especially in certain areas in Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia. So um, it has more or less. Uh, not it's not more or less. I'm I'm sorry. Has definitely most certainly influenced the religious and Islamic uh, discourse uh, in Malaysia. But again, I think, uh, in, in my opinion, over the last uh, four or five years, it has uh, three or four years perhaps since COVID, I think, and, and that's also because of COVID. I think it has uh, de decreased and, and lessened because of, again, I think many other issues uh, of uh, economy, uh, employment, jobs, and, and climate, I think they, have taken the, the the center stage, but also they have not gone away. Definitely, uh, this this um, religious sentiments and undercurrents they are still there. And once in a while, when when issues, um, again in if um, like in many countries, if issues that relate to race and religion, if they emerge, then it creates again a certain fissure. But other than that, um, it seems to have. Um, decrease and stabilize in the last few years. Oh, that's, oh, that's interesting. Oh, let's uh, I talked enough. I'll uh, let's sit there. No, it's, no, it's uh, there are, there are, those are interesting questions that I'm curious to know about. Uh, but you mentioned like Saudi influence in uh, Malaysia. Do you think that plays a role in some sort of, uh, I would say, like suppression that happens against Shias in Malaysia for some time. Do you think that's partly because of the Saudi influence or it has other reasons? Uh, again, um, they, again, um, re referring to some of the work done uh, by some of the academics here, uh, it has definitely an, an influence. The the sort of um, the the kind or the how would you say the discourse of Islam that has been uh, brought in. Um, some some would use the term a, a Salafi a Salafi oriented way uh, of of thinking about uh, Islam or, or a discourse of Islam. Um, so and then so looking at other denominators or schools as something that is um, out perhaps of the orthodoxy. So th that has definitely happened. But I would say that would not be the only and single factor. I think 
um, because of um, and, and this was the in in the earlier earlier years of the Syrian war and and you know the the war that was happening uh, in in the Middle East um, the uh, between um, Iran and, and and Saudi Arabia and also the other countries so uh, of course mm-hmm. with Israel and also Palestine it has always again so those issues are, are hot issues uh, Chris in in Malaysia uh, or, you know um, usually as compared to the, um, Russia and Ukraine so Palestinians uh, Israel issue so that has also influenced the way um, Islam has been um, practiced and also thought about in Malaysia and of course with that um, international developments and also of course with with political um, discourses that happen here so again when uh, there is a particular problem or issue uh, race and religion somehow always arises and emerges as, as one right. uh, yeah too so uh, it's a combination of factors but definitely I, I would say um, the role of the country definitely has has uh, as an impact and also the things um, the war the earlier war ISIS and, and of the sort which has um, take place and it has its uh, spillover effects on, on the kind uh, of, of, of uh, news and information on, on politics and also religion and Islam that we consume and also we get over here yeah it's interesting you men- mentioned Palestine I think I was reading um, maybe a while ago, that there were discussions of uh, whether Malaysia would normalize relations with Israel, and it wasn't. I mean, the uh, Malaysian officials mentioned that that's not happening at any time soon, at least. So is is this something that Malaysians discuss and are interested to follow up on, like the Palestinian resistance and the con- um, like their country's relation with the uh, Zionist regime. So it's a particularly um, strange (laughs) situations, uh, in the sense that um, Malaysia has always been a a strong uh, supporter. Uh, The Malaysian government has, has, I would believe, has always been a strong advocate of the the Palestinian issue and the Palestinian cause. but also at the same time, I think um, trying again, you know, being Malaysia, being as it is, tries to take a more non-aligned and, and neutral approach to diplomacy, not getting into too uh, deep the, the deeper end of many of these these issues. Um, so trying to balance, but nevertheless has also expressed a strong position. Um, but at the same time, again, over the years, I think because of the proximity, the closeness between the, the, the two governments, I think uh, at, at least between Malaysia and uh, Saudi Arabia and also some of the other countries uh, in the Middle East, I think that has taken away some of the bite or intensity in terms of the advocacy mm. for, for, Pal- for Palis- Palestine. I, it is still there, it is still there, but um, it has sort of um, decreased that sort of um, sensitivity and, and heightened mm-hmm. support, I, 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 would, I would say. So like um, if at some point Malaysia also wanted to normalize relations with Israel, like the Saudi Arabia or UAE did, you think there's like less opposition to it as it was, as there was before? 
in my view, I wouldn't um, think that um, that would happen anytime soon. Uh, although, uh, although uh, it it has that close relation to to these countries, uh, but at the same time, because of other factors, including um, local sentiments, which are historical, and and there is a mm-hmm. tradition to it. And also other other groups, uh, other political groups, other NGOs, uh, which are also um, in in support of uh, Palestine, um, and also um, in terms of the need or the the intent of the government to try to take a more neutral approach. So I think that and everything else balance it balances uh, it off, and and that would. In my opinion, not be happening any anytime soon. Yeah. For example, uh, over here, um, Mahathir continues to be a very uh, strong uh, supporter of uh, the Palestinian cause. I think it was during his time, uh, again after twenty eighteen, that I think uh, he started um, pivoting again, or at least trying to um, bring up again the relations relations with uh, Palestine, Turkey, and other countries. Um, while also at the same time maintaining uh, relations with other Middle Eastern countries. Do, right. do you How see about the, Iran? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, just, before we go to Iran, I just have a quick question. Do you see the the crimes of the Zionists, like they've recently been doing a lot of killing of Palestinians, do you see that often reported in the news, the state media or other media? Like, is it is it something people often hear about or are able to hear about freely it it it, it does get uh re- reported definitely um <clears throat> issues uh related to to palestinians uh, to palestinian to 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 the middle east the war has always uh, been reported but again um it also depends on local and domestic politics and issues again i would believe i i i I'm uncertain whether this would be a positive or negative uh, aspect of it. Uh, but when issues of uh, when local issues are in the in the news, so those kind of news gets um, it lessens. Yeah. yeah, it lessens. Yeah, and especially now, I'm not sure if you may be aware of if you if you if you if you follow. I think everyone is um, talking about the impending elections in in Malaysia. So over the last one year or so, everything has has been about uh, poli- and also because of the political instability, uh, governments have been changing, switching sides. So our national and political narrative has has been more or less consumed by those concerns rather than international developments. Well, I. Get- Let's talk about Iran for a little bit, and then I want to get back to that and explore COVID and the local politics. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, what about Iran and Malaysia's relation? Um, but before that, maybe you can tell us why you became interested in learning about Iran and what was your, because you were doing your postdoc in Iran, right? So can you tell us about your postdoc project and how you became interested in Iran and what were you exactly studying here? Um, I always felt that um, 
Persian history, Iranian history is something that's not been discussed or uh, talked about uh, a lot uh, in Malaysia, uh, despite uh, having very strong uh, relations um, historically and traditionally. I think many uh, writers, historians have spoke about how you know close um, old or classical Malay uh, civilization or, or, or governments or kingdoms uh, had with the Persian um, civilization or empire or, or even this culture more broadly. Uh, so um, while that is there, it has not been discussed um, a lot. So uh, in university, in, uh, in UKM, and also when I was doing my PhD in the National University of Singapore, I had the chance to go deeper into this issue, in this, into these subjects and issues, and also with um, many of the professors in, in the NUS and also in Iran, um, you know, um, with uh, workshops and organizing trips. It gave me the room uh, to explore more and also um, to learn more about a culture, uh, a history which is so close and near, and yet, but at the same time, it's also not talked about uh, as much. Yeah. Um, and again, also because as a colonial, as, as, a, as a former colonized country and society, we tend to always look to the West, for example. Uh, but that is uh, one way. So in, in, in economic and intellectual debates and discourse, we call, we call um, this um, Western or intellectual hegemony or, 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 or hegemony or um, a certain ism of Western ideas um, and, and, and thoughts. But looking at neighboring countries, for example, I always felt that uh, countries in Asia, it is important to have that Asian uh, perspective, uh, looking at Indonesia, looking at other Southeast Asian countries, looking at Iran, um, looking at Japan, and also other countries on, on the Eastern uh, part. Um, but the opportunity for, for, for the study of Iran came up, and, and I think it has um, been very helpful and useful. So, and I think it's, uh, again, um, not talked about as much in the academic sphere. I think it's important to learn and understand Iranian history, Persian history, politics, um, you know, um, culture and religion. Um, many perspectives that we don't get here, <clears throat> again, because of the dominant um, discourses that we have here. But those are, are, are very useful. So that curiosity and that interest sort of got me into, um, I suppose, where I am today. And, and also the the program uh, that I did in, in, in Tehran, in Azahra, uh, two years ago, before coming back to Kuala Lumpur. Right, what was the program about? Uh, it was a, so it was a postdoctoral uh, research uh, position. So it gave me the chance to do a comparative study of Malaysian and also uh, Iranian intellectuals on political ideas and society uh, more broadly. So who were the Iranian intellectuals that you studied about, if you can tell us? They're, it spanned from thinkers who were 
in the uh, constitutional movement, um, mm -hmm. the mush, uh, what do you call the constitutionalists in, in, in Persian? Um, Mashrutiyad. Yeah, the Mashrutiyad people. Yeah, interesting in academic writing is always to capture the contestations that were happening so on one hand you had the constitutionalists um, Hussein Naini and many others mm -hmm. but also on the other side you have people who were more uh, inclined to a more different vision of society and then moving up uh, to the pre-Iranian uh, pre, pre before the Iranian revolution um, nice. people who were involved in um, Kapatabai, Motahari, Khomeini, and of course the, mm -hmm. the whole group. And, and um, then moving a bit up into the post-Iranian, uh, uh, also Shariati including, of course, before mm -hmm. that. And then moving up a bit into the post-Iranian uh, with some, some of the reformist discourse, uh, but also tied in to some of the more um, other um, sorts of competing ideas at the same time also that were prevalent. Yeah, so some of those thinkers, but also some, some writers uh, also um, try to cover some writers um, who were also part of these movements. Interesting. That's really interesting. Thank you. So, <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating how... Uh, yeah, and it's very interesting that you you compared them to Malaysian intellectuals, right? What were what were like, let let's say, what was the most um, interesting maybe similarity that you found between the two countries' intellectuals? There was there something that surprised you, or um, you just found fascinating about the two countries' intellectuals? I. I I through through my readings, I, I developed a hunch, but then I I would believe and, and argue that I think that is that hunch would be true, in the sense that I always felt that both societies, as with many other societies, we are always concerned with the idea or question of social justice, how mm. uh, framings of social justice uh, engulf and consume uh, and even um, you know shape the way uh, events, um, revolutions, in the case of Iran, um, reform um, uh, movements in Malaysia, um, they are all shaped by framings of the idea of what we understand by social justice. And, and um, attached to that, my belief is always that in, in these framings of social justice, um, ideas of culture uh, cannot be separated whether be it uh, religious ideas be it literary ideas um, they are always um, attached to how or influence the way we understand social justice so moving away from that strict civil uh, legal political dimension of it but also involving a cultural uh, perspective and dimension to, to those questions. Do you think that the idea of social justice is, uh, is sort of used as a 
kind of a universal justification of state power in postmodern democracies. So that's sort of how I see it. I get like in the U.S., it's everyone loves talking about social justice now, but the state is actually not just at all, and it just does horrible things. I mean, there's a litany of state crimes every day, uh, and and yet, uh, you know, people somehow have it in their head that the state is there basically to protect, you know, the weak or the vulnerable. Um, and, and yet it's obviously not. Uh, so there's kind of this myth of social justice. It seems to be, obviously, if you went back in history, most societies or states or whatever were imposed by force and people had no choice and there was no but once you enter democracy into it in a postmodern sense, you have the state has to be benevolent in some way, or else people vote it out. I mean, so do you think social justice is sort of used in that way in both contexts as sort of like a either legitimate or illegitimate uh, um, rationale for state power? Definitely, Chris, definitely. Social justice is always a contested and um, multi-age concept used by different people for different purposes uh, at different times for different uh, reasons. Um, what would perhaps be a form or I discourse of social justice today might then be co-opted and use as a state-driven narrative for social justice the next day, depending on, on how the situation is. But I, and, and also, as, as Chris mentioned, um, the horrors and the tragedies of war that has been waged in the name of justice and also democracy and freedom in many different ways uh, has, is always a reminder uh, that these uh, concepts and ideas are not neutral. And but in, in, in my uh, opinion and perspective, it makes it even more important to understand and to study the ideologies and the contest contestations which takes place around these issues. What is actually and who is articulating what and for which what reason? Um, does it speak for the government? Does it speak for the elite? Or does it speak for those on the margins and the oppressed or the underrepresented? So I think that whole uh, field is something that, that, that's worth uh, discussing and studying about. Uh, and especially, I think, framings and articulations of social justice from the fringes or from the margins, uh, counter discourses of justice are always very interesting in comparison to state-sanctioned and state-driven or dominant discourses. Of social justice. That's a really good point because if you look at the, I mean, in the U.S.'s case, like if you look at Black Lives Matter, and then you talk to actual Black people living in uh, communities, you get almost com completely different narratives. <laughs> like there's when you have when you have a state sort of sanctioned or or funded or corporate funded, where in the U.S. the case of state and corporate is not much different. So when you have, uh, you know, this uh, large movements that get co-opted by big, powerful forces and 
sort of go under the guise of social justice. It's it can be tricky because if someone is just a average citizen wanting to do good and they hear so the word social justice or they hear anti-racism, they think, oh, these are automatically really good things. And sometimes you can get wrapped up in in uh, activism that's a little bit different than what you intended, I think, which is uh, something. I think people have learned in the US over, I don't know if they've learned it very well, but some people have. <laughs> so that's a really good point that the state state sanctioned social justice and social justice from the margins, from the people, from the, you know, the unwashed masses, they're very different. Uh, yeah. Yeah, def definitely agree. And I think those are the interesting ones that I think need more discussion and study. They should be brought up to the mainstream conversations. Well, they're uh, actually uh, the legitimate ones. They're actually yeah. the marginal, com marginal and democratic voices of social justice are, are legitimate. The illegitimate ones are the ones that are given power that they don't deserve because of establishment support. That's how I would phrase it. Yeah. How do you view that in Iran, Sarah? How do you view the social justice in Iran? It's a very interesting question because Iran is always viewed as this, like, top-down, no, no democrat. At least in the U.S., you know the crazy propaganda about Iran. It's like the mullahs do everything and nobody has any freedom. So, how do you, how could you describe social justice in Iran? How we just sort of phrased it? Just curious. Uh, well, I think it's mostly, I mean, definitely the establishment um, supports the social justice movements that are mostly in favor of the, I mean, it gives some more legitimacy to the state. But I think most of the things, most of the social uh, justice movements or um, like calls for justice in that area that I know of are coming from the grassroots. Like it's not something that um, that maybe the establishment would support or like, yeah, I would pay that much attention to. For example, I would say, um, like with uh, women's rights, that's something that you see the grassroots. Um, I mean, it comes from the people. But I think the problem in Iran is that there are a lot of social justice movements that are usually like hijacked by, um, I would say, like by fake supporters from outside. And that makes it even more difficult for people inside to like support a cause because it becomes very easy for the establishment to label that as something that is happening from outside Iran. Like for example, there are a lot of women who are fighting for their rights here and they want to see improvements. But then there are, I don't know, like um, US funded or UK funded or even Saudi funded um, media giving like headlines or you know people people like Iranian expats that are fully supported and um, 
you know, even paid by like hostile governments, uh, hostile to Iran. And then, I mean, they're they're trying to kind of, I would say, like they're trying to hijack that movement and show it like they their way of showing support or uh, getting involved with uh, what's happening inside Iran makes it very difficult from for women inside Iran to fight for that cause because it's it becomes very very easy to label them as you know like US backed or I don't know UK backed and then it loses the legitimacy of the movements it, it becomes the US is also constantly sitting there waiting to hijack anyone who's raising a legitimate concern about exactly yeah so it's like you fear if you if you actually care about the stability of your country it's very hard to say anything yeah like, yeah it's like you're you have to fight two three wars it's like your struggle becomes multi multi-dimensional and you have to fight those foreign forces but also the establishment but also how like the issue that you were involved like also fight in a way that would actually improve the situation for women because a lot of those things that come from outside make like they actually impede the progress they're not helping and they're making it just more difficult yeah so that's what i would say yeah maybe ken do you have an idea about that when because you lived here for two years and you were also like exploring the idea of social justice among Iranian intellectuals too. Yeah, I, th- I think what Sethari mentioned, I think that's very true and even more true for a country like Iran um, in the sense that it is always a geopolitical issue and geopolitical question. I think the stakes are very high for people who are or want to have an interest on the state of affairs in Iran, I think. So, um, as Setare mentioned, you end up, you always end up fighting, I, I, I would feel, two or three different wars at the same time. Wars, yeah. Um, yeah. Of conflicts at the same time because of how high the stakes are over there. I would think, like, perhaps in a country like Malaysia, where the stakes are not so high, interference or, or, or what occurs here does not impact international trends as much, I, I, I would feel maybe then the stakes are not so high. So opportunities for people to uh, get involved or try to get involved or show that they are involved are less as compared to a country like, like Iran. Um, any intent or project aimed at uplifting or empowering a certain community or issue, it has, it's always under the, 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 the risk of being hij- hijacked, so to say, and also being labeled as a Western. And, uh, and that actually used to happen here in, in, in the past as well, although somehow because of social media, I think we have managed to sort of uh, make to, 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 to lessen that. Uh, because previously many, uh, again, like Satare pointed out, many movements for rights, including women's rights and free, uh, academic freedom, for example, in the past were very easily dismissed as Western interference and uh, culture. Mm. But I think because of the local movement and because of social media and the internet, I think that has no longer been able to um, haunt 
uh, what 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 is happening locally. But I think Iran, yeah, definitely because of so many reasons, it has always been very difficult. Right. Yeah, it's very yeah. Complicated. Yeah, it has changed here too. Like because yeah, exactly. I would say social media has played a role in that too. And there are more people from inside Iran who are uh, like pro-establishment and pro-Iran, but they uh, like have reasons to um, support those kinds of movements, and they are speaking out so to minimize the effect the that interference and uh, to just to like um, safeguard and save their movement from being hijacked or being totally dismissed. But it's, and it's not only that, I mean, it's also that um, I think um, like the, those interferences also try to um, change uh, the priority for women. Like for example, women in Iran, probably the majority of Iranian women are more concerned with women's rights in marriage or uh, in other issues, but then you get um, a lot of coverage on uh, like obligatory hijab, which uh, I mean, it is an issue here and there are people fighting for it, but it's not, it's probably not the first priority that like Iranian women uh, would want to change. Like and, and they are they are like fighting for other causes that are a lot more important for them. Like um, I don't know, equality in education and in job opportunities. Um, and then you see someone starting and um, I don't know, like um, make, giving uh, a lot of media attention to other issues that are also legitimate but not the first priority. So it's that's why I'd say it, it just makes the struggle even more complicated and you have to be very careful um, with a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. So what about Iran-Malaysia uh, relations? Do you think a lot of people in, in Malaysia um, know about Iran or what's the perception that they have of Iran? Or where where do you think they get that perception from? I think the stereotype uh, still persists. Um, also, an outcome of of the developments over the the past uh, many years, a decade or so. If 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 it's yeah, if um, I, I could say so, the stereotype of Iran uh, being a um, um, different, a, a sort of a different uh, Islamic country, a, a form of Islam or school of Islam that's not accepted within um, the mainstream, what we understand as Islam, and also not part of the orthodoxy. So that stereotype mm. still uh, pers persists. Um, the, the last uh, 2022, uh, 2020, the last four years, um, when the change of government in 2018 took place, there were, I think, attempts to try to, again, through international relations and through national politics and conversations, to try to balance up. Um, but uh, because the government only stood for about two years before, again, switching back to a different coalition, I think that mm -hmm. has sort of um, maintained status quo. So status quo in the sense that um, stereotypes of, of the country and the religion still uh, persist. Um, but again, 
uh, as with all things, um, issues which are sensitive are also um, practical and expedient for certain reasons at certain times if they are useful to cover or, or to distract from certain issues. Um, so well, where am I going with this? What I'm trying to say, I, I would suppose is that it, it is there. Uh, no, it, it has not been um, as intense and spoken of, but not because that it is not there. Uh, it is still there, mm. but also that um, it, it has not been used uh, to that uh, purpose and effect for, for those divisions and for those uh, distractions. Um, there are a few groups uh, here and there, but they still continue to, to be, the, the, again, as we, we, we say, the margins and the minorities. Uh, people who are more um, aware, I suppose, or wired in. And again, uh, because perhaps our society is not one that is actually too uh, wired in into national, uh, international developments all the time, only maybe certain times, I think that also influence the way we understand and think of, 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 of Iran. Uh, if there were more coverage, uh, more interactions uh, at every level, I feel right. those stereotypes wouldn't be uh, there. But it, it is difficult yeah, because true. it is also at the same time, it is cultural, but also at the same time structural and also institutional. But as a matter of foreign relations, I, I would say and believe that uh, relations with Iran has always been um, more or less there. Um, we have a consulate and also an embassy here. Um, I, I, I believe the other day the ambassador paid uh, a, a courtesy visit to a few government leaders and officials also. So um, on, on that part, it has always been maintained, but the undercurrents are the one that's usually uh, not uh, spoken of or discussed as much. And what these views entail and the consequences that they, they create. So when, while you were in Iran, did you have the perception that this is more or less the same uh, with Iranians' perception of Malaysia, or is it different? Because I, w I would personally say that probably Iranians have a more positive like, image of Malaysia than Malaysians have of Iran. Is that something that you also have felt? Yes, I, I would uh, agree and believe so. Yeah. Um, some people, some wouldn't know. <laughs> some wouldn't know Malaysia right. as compared to maybe other countries. But for those that do, right. um, yeah, um, all in all, the feedback and responses have always been positive and 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 uh, supportive of of uh, Malaysia as a economically uh, developed country, politically mm -hmm. stable, generally, relatively, and also which at one time was a particular favorite destination for many Iranians, I think, and, and which I think yeah. continue to be only because of COVID. I think it has really declined, but if, but you, but as if, if, if the previous trends were to stand, Iranians generally do and still visit, uh, have a good, yeah. very good positive impression of Malaysia. Yeah, that's true. And it's, and I, th I think like at, at least for some point, uh, there was this perception in Iran that Malaysia is a genuine Islamic country with economic development and independence and everything. So like you said, those who knew about Malaysia and Iran usually had very positive ideas. Yeah. So 
Chris, do you have questions? Yeah, well, I to just brought up COVID. Mm -hmm. I always have questions about COVID. Mm -hmm. The entire narrative is a giant question for me. But uh, I'm curious, the lockdowns, Malaysia had some of the toughest lockdowns in the world. How long did they last? We had two big lockdowns, if I remember correctly. Uh, one which was throughout 2020 from around April to April to September. And then another one which extended from the end of 2020 right up to uh, the middle of uh, 2021. Uh, please forgive me if I, if I get it wrongly. Wow. Because so like two chunks of almost half a right. year. Right, wow. right, half a year each year. So only towards, uh, if I remember correctly, because we had so many lockdowns, I think I've lost my yeah. sense of time and also um, <laughs> we all did. years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was true. only towards the end of the middle or towards the end of 2021 that I think things, uh, be, uh, because of the vaccination actually, um, it, it really didn't really um, decline or gone off yet, but because of the vaccination program and, and what the government was doing. And um, the consensus here was the people, uh, the government needed to open up. So it happened simultaneously with the vaccination program uh, at its highest point. So I think that was mid or mid, from mid onwards, 2021, things started opening up, you know, despite numbers hovering at the high, um, level, but then also up. decreased. Yeah. yeah, but also so it was irrespective of the numbers. It was more because of the yeah. because the vaccination program started, so they felt like you, they can open. Right, right, and yeah. they 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 felt that the two lockdowns were too punishing. Not only in terms of, right. uh, in fact, in the case of Malaysia, I would believe different from the US, many maybe many other countries. It was not only the social or the the freedom, independence, democratic aspect was that was important, but I think economic concerns were were the mm -hmm. priority. So the oh, government... we had that too in the U.S. I mean, that's, it wasn't talked about, but that was the major mm -hmm. outcome. Concerns. Yeah, it was dire economic problems because a lot of you know the people making the policies are are what some people call the laptop class who are able to lock down because all their jobs are on the laptop, right? But right. the people that they're imposing those policies are aren't. They have to, have to actually use their hands and go out in the world to do their work. And uh, yeah, so it it had devastating effects, especially on children. I mean, some of the some of the I read I think it was Los Angeles school district can't account for like thousands and thousands of students. They just like disappeared from the record and they've never come back and they don't know where they are and uh, you know so. It's a, and that's just here in the developed, quote unquote, developed world. Uh, in Africa, like there's, uh, I mean, unbelievable studies showing how many people in, I think there was a study in Uganda showing how many people just, the children, I think it was a third of the entire uh, school age children have just been lost from school because of the economic situation. They either had to go to school or do work or in the case of girls, they got pregnant. So, like, I mean, they like when you interrupt that pattern of schooling, you devastate the entire life of many millions and millions of children around the world. So, but along those lines of a terrible policymaking, 
How has the lockdown affected the political race? Do people talk about, are some like of the politicians who were calling for lockdowns, are they being penalized in the political race and people calling them out for for, for doing those things or how, how is it perceived? The, the so that's the, the the interesting part. So across the board, uh, the debate was more on the what the issues of lockdown wasn't as contentious as compared to government policies to address the economic situation during and after the lockdown. So many of our many of the the the, the issues which um, sway people wasn't so much on their positions on, on the lockdown per se. I think many of the politicians and people generally, at least right up to the second lockdown, were sort of in, in consensus that it was something uh, needed and necessary. Um, of course, if the lockdown were to extend to a third one, I think then there would be political divisions there because some was already, and also it was tied down to, again, government re responses and also failures. Uh, but up till there, uh, the consensus, there was still consensus on what was needed. Um, but uh, how um, and what to do, especially in terms of the economy, uh, then was the one that was more um, in the news uh, rather than the lockdown itself per se. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah. COVID, has COVID played a factor in any other way in the, uh, in the election? discussions and debates as the people like demanded more vaccines or is there any other COVID drama that's incorporated into the domestic politics? I, I think what has become the most obvious uh, throughout the and what the, the pandemic has uh, shown us is that the inequality between different sections of society is glaring um, whether in terms of uh, whether politically economically uh, socially um, as chris mentioned you know um, you know it's so important like in countries for example in, in africa of course not only in africa in terms of the issue of education so social uh, economic uh, education questions how many of our students and young people have dropped out uh, from from the social uh, structure and, and institutions, um, economically, how um, polarized and, and unequal our society is uh, with the elite making money and profit despite COVID and despite many people going bankrupt and, and jobless for a long period of time, and politically, how many of the elite and people get away with certain actions while uh, the, the common person, the common man or a person as we say, get punished for violation of laws and regulations. So I, I think the it, it's very glaring. I think many people uh, have now become aware on how unequal in every way our society is, how certain people can get away with certain things, whereas others have to suffer the consequences of it. I think that has um, really uh, become part of the political narrative and discourse at the moment. Um, so many oh. people talking about it. To like elaborate on that dynamic, is there any skepticism about the vaccine or about pharma pharmacological research or 
big pharma corporations? Any you hear people talk about? Because all, all of your vaccines are coming from American companies, right? Right, right, yeah. So is there any skepticism of American corporations injecting things in your arms? It was at one time. It was at one time and uh, certain, it was at one time, uh, especially when the vaccination drive was at its highest. And also uh, by certain groups, uh, communities. Um, but again, I think it, um, very much influenced by external factors and also development. So as the economy opened up, I think, and as the the rate uh, became higher, so I think generally Malaysians do subscribe to the vaccine because um, from what the numbers show, man, we I think our society, our country is one of the ones that has a high uh, percentage of vaccinated population. So in, in that sense, right. I yeah, in that sense, I would believe, yeah, there's a tendency to be okay with it. But of course, yeah, now and then, depending again on, on domestic and international developments, and also depending on certain groups, yeah, that, that sentiment is, is still there. But did you get all your vaccines from the U.S.? Like, what was the, what was, uh, the company that got more, most vaccines in Malaysia? Think, was it Pfizer I, and Moderna? I think three, I think um, um, in Malaysia, the three most uh, prominent ones uh, or, or the more ones that I used are the Pfizer, um, the AZ. AZ is by a UK, a European. Yeah, UK. AstraZeneca. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, the one by China, what, uh, Sinovac. Sinopharm. Zinovac. Oh, Sinovac. Okay. Yeah. So, so those three. Uh, so, yeah. So even then, you see there's a balance. You know, there's some from China, there's from US, and then there's right. from Europe. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So you could get the Chinese or the American one. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, you have a big Chinese population there, so I'm right. sure they were right. more. Well, that's interesting. You might be one of the only countries in the world that considers someone fully vaccinated if they had the American or the Chinese vaccine. I think. Most countries elsewhere, like here, I don't think the Chinese vaccine counts for anything. And I think in a lot of the Chinese-aligned countries, the, the American vaccine doesn't count. So, Or maybe it does. America sort of a big bully. But uh, definitely the Chinese vaccine is totally non... It's, just a, it's like a nothing here. People would be like, sign a what? So, yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting that, yeah... Did you get that in Iran, the Sinovac, Sinopharm? Yeah, we had the Chinese vaccine. And that yeah. that was like the one that most people wanted to get. And Yeah, because obviously how many Yeah, But there were also people who wanted to get Pfizer and they were very dissatisfied with the government not importing enough uh, Pfizer. And, and some people even traveled to Armenia or Turkey because they wanted to have the real vaccine and not the ones... You know, we, we also got that. I collect a list of those people's names and keep them in a database. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I personally know people who went to Turkey because they wanted to get Pfizer. Oh, uh, well, I hope they, uh, they stay healthy. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, well, most people good. that I know got send a farm yeah and some imagine. like the older ones got astrazeneca and 
yeah, the majority of uh, people I know, they either got Sinopharm and a few people got also the Iranian vaccine. So, yeah, we had a wide range of options. Yeah. Well, it was an interesting uh, time. And I I certainly hope it's not happening again. Do you have any uh, sense dealing with politics there? Are people sort of dropping hints that they think this thing is going to keep going and there's going to be more of it in the fall? Do you hear hints of that in the political discourse? Like, oh, be prepared for lockdown soon again. Monkeypox is coming. I think it's um it's or maybe there. climate change. Yeah, it it's, it comes from uh, come it is there, um but comes uh, one it comes from uh, select groups, um, interests or how do you say policy based groups, and the other one I don't think while it is there I I would suppose but it is it has not been it has not taken a um how do you say propaganda or a, a controversial turn. In the sense that I think there is an awareness, so it's couched within the language of public health and also climate change, in the sense that if society or the government is not prepared for environmental destruction, uh, ways of managing health, and the intersections between health, environment, and also politics, if the government fails to address those issues through policy, I think um, perhaps not the issues of lockdown per se, but the issues of how we deal with um, public health changes in, in health of societies influenced by changes and disruptions in the environment where um, nature and society and the human population has become even more intertwined and also in conflicting positions in, in different ways. So it has, it's more or less couched in, in that way. But of course, yeah, you get also different groups you know, taking on a more proper, the different controversial and, and those kind of, of, of things yeah, about lockdowns, of how this is a scheme or, or some part of a larger thing. Yeah. But, so, but by and large, the, I think the awareness is there and the, there's more uh, pressure for discussions on those intersections between climate and also health and society. Hmm. So sort of keeping, keeping the, uh, all the tools on the table, I guess. That's what about right so whatever the next next threat comes our way there yeah i feel like that's the same here too there's basically just no no one's been criticized for in any official way or anything for any of the policies that were done so and there's nothing no real critiques or except for some few politicians that are easily branded like right-wing extremists or whatever. And so they're discounted by the majority of intellectuals. Um, and so there's very little discourse on, rational discourse on managing that kind of thing. So I feel like there's possibly with environment, like I feel like they're trying at least the narratives that are being pushed by certain certain capital driven forces uh, are trying to shape uh, climate lockdowns in the future. So yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that. So uh, that's something to, something to keep, uh, 
keep our eyes on that's a narrative that's developing or not. But yeah, I think that's about all the questions I have, unless you, uh, unless there's a, is there, yeah, is there any stories that you have from your time in Iran that were like, uh, that are good, like uh, campfire stories? You know, like when you sit around a campfire and tell a story. Do you have any good stories about your time in Iran that you could that you uh, tell people about? Um, as uh, as always, um, I I think um, Iranians um, take pride in being a hospitable and a friendly society. I think yeah, uh, if I am, if I remember correctly, Sadari. So my time in Iran, I truly I. I truly enjoyed it and it's always been because of the people i think it makes the trip and the stay worthwhile um of course um iran is also a beautiful place uh, with you know uh, in every way from nature to culture to history uh, but also because of the people i think it has um it's, iran is always a, a a good place and happy place to be not happy happy but you know it's always a a, a place where you always can feel that um, you can um, be comfortable and also uh, do things. And there are people who are always, um, you know, very um, friendly and also very uh, helpful to 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 be there. And also, yeah, I think that what that's what makes the the, the place and the, and the trips there very worthwhile and nice. Do you have any plans to visit again? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> we'll see what happens. What happens uh, after this? You know, um, it'd be good to to now. Now the flights are, are quite still um, very. Um, the prices the prices range, and then it's also inconsistent. Okay. So maybe hopefully in the next uh, few months or maybe so we'll see if things can come to a more stable. And then yeah, definitely be happy to go there again. Yeah, let's see. Inshallah, we will visit. Yeah, yeah and, okay, and also so... vice versa. Yeah, let me know yeah. if you come by. To yeah, I'll come come to Penang and have some fruit. I heard that fruit in Penang was great <laughs> from my friend who traveled there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Should go. Yeah, me be, pictures of like be happy to, to bring you around, Chris, and also Setari. Yeah. All right. We can, yeah, so we far, can we have plans to travel to Tajikistan and Kenya, oh, yeah. and now we have Malaysia on the list, mm -hmm. right, Chris? Yeah. Exactly. This is going to be an epic trip. Right. <laughs> <laughs> great. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ken, for your time. And it was great to catch up with you after a long time. Right, right. Thank you so much, Setari. Good to see you. Kaylee, Kaylee, Shodan. Shodan. Great. I see I forgot. <laughs> no, that was perfect. So, that was perfect. So, so forgetful. Yeah, I've not been using, I think for two years now. Yeah, I can't remember the terms anymore. Uh, thank you very oh, much. That was uh, good. Yeah, and then also Chris, good to uh, see you. Maybe, yeah, catch up more next time. Ask about, I was doing all the talking this time. Maybe I can, get Chris to, to share. Well, you're the special yeah. guest, so you can you can <laughs> yeah, interview exactly. me next time. That's fine. We can, right. do a, you start, we can start a podcast for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Very, yeah. It'd be, be nice to, to, to listen more from Chris also. I haven't had the chance yeah, to speak more, but thank you so much.
Hopefully yeah, but next time we can do it at a time where it's not one o'clock a.m. my time, and I'll be a little bit more interesting to talk to. All right. So sorry. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> no, it's not your fault. It's just the world we live on. It's round. Right. Right. Okay. Thanks yeah. So, like, you two have twelve hours of time difference, right? Twelve hours. And I'm like, okay. yeah, twelve hours, and I have like three and a half hours with Ken, and eight hours and a half with Chris. So oh, that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That would be difficult, but yeah, it was. It worked. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a good uh, conversation. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Right, right. Same here. Yeah. And, and, and thanks, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for tuning into another episode of Twice Told Tales podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel.